listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 232. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Oniko Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey son, hey son! Uh, how have you guys been? Well, really good. We've been actually on the comet hunt last week. Ooh. So we tried to see the comet because we thought it's like really special. It's only it here indeed. for every pretty much roughly 7,000 years. So did you see it yet? No, I haven't. No. Every night that I could have gone out mm. and watched it, it was cloudy. Me too. Here, some here. So I have high hopes for tonight. Oh, really? <laughs> it, it's, it's very cloudy here in Sweden at the moment. I don't think I'll have it. I think I'll miss it. Oh, shit. Some lovely pictures, though, from all kinds of people, not just from, from real astronomers, but also from... Uh, fellow people on social media so so i i believe uh, if you make an effort and if you're lucky you can really see it yeah yeah it's 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 really a once in a lifetime thing yeah. so well, we really want to see it <laughs> yeah for this particular comet it is indeed if you're not yeah if you're not a vampire then yes oh, yeah. but do you guys remember hail bob yeah Annika, you might be too young for that. I think I saw not Hellbot, but the other one, the Hell's ha- Comet. Haley's Comet. Yes. Haley's yeah, Comet. That, I saw this one no, yeah. when I was have. like eight or so. Oh, it was Hale Bob. It was Hale Bob. I don't remember, but it, I was very young. Yeah. <laughs> Haley's was here in the, ni- in the 1980s. Yeah, so. yeah, that was right. So it was, then it was Hale yeah, Bob, yeah. I, I was here for Haley's Comet. However, I didn't see it because it was a big fiasco and I want my money back. <laughs> it didn't show. Well, I rem- remember I was like seven or eight and my mom woke me up and I was like, oh, look outside. So I, th- I, I think that must have been Hale Bob then. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, and the good thing is about phenomena like this is is that people go outside and take the time to watch the night sky. Mm. And occasionally, and, and I used to be a member of the local astronomy club here, and we operated a, a, a large uh, public observatory as well with a three meter long reflector telescope, a Newton telescope. It was amazing. And uh, people came over to see the comet Hale-Bopp in the 90s, but they ended up watching a lot of other stuff as well. So this is what I really enjoy about me not working much these days, that I have the time (laughs) to do stuff like going outside and look at the night sky. I can finally use my telescope as well, especially that now all the the, the good stuff is there. Do you you know that all the good stuff is there to see (laughs) every (laughs) evening and the morning? Yeah, yeah, right. Light pollution is a... problem though thing yeah yeah <laughs> fortunately not not that much where i live yeah lots of different objects of the solar system can be seen so uh mars is coming beautifully into your eyes and jupiter saturn yeah. venus if you're an early riser but uh with uh, jupiter and saturn they're up there now so yeah. if you go outside in the evening uh, where we, we're recording in the evening at around 9 30 p.m so um uh, I still have high hopes for All right. after we've uh, finished recording this yeah. because it's it's just amazing and I I love astronomy and I love the night sky. Mm. Yeah, and so for some you don't need an advanced telescope or an advanced equipment. You just need a binocular. Or uh, did you watch the comet uh, with the naked eye? So no binoculars at all. You can see it with the naked eye, um, like because it's pretty bright right now. 
but it of course you can see it way better with of course um, yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) Yeah. so uh it's pretty good cool but uh there there was another thing that is pretty cool yeah it required a bit of a an advanced piece of equipment (laughs) and uh that that equipment was the solar orbiter probe (laughs) which is the orbiter of the european space agency so Mm -hmm. there we go europe we we did it and uh go europe well it was in collaboration with nasa but never mind that and it just made pictures and recordings of the sun's surface from just 77 million kilometers half an astronomical unit which is the halfway distance between, from here yeah, to there yeah between the earth and, and uh, it's closer than any probe had ever taken any pictures with cameras and uh, they found these mini flares one millionth the size of those we can see from from earth occasionally that were spotted on the surface and the researchers named them campfires campfires <laughs> yeah well they're, they're slightly hotter than campfires just five to six times hotter do they look like campfires oh <laughs> uh, actually they they do a little bit they said they're small, but they're, they're really not, actually. <laughs> small, um, like size of Earth. <laughs> there's this uh, researcher from Belgium named David Bergmans, who is the principal investigator to the probe's extreme ultraviolet imager. And he said that even the smallest of these flares are around the size of some larger European countries. Ooh, but that's still small. I mean, if it's it, the, the sun we're talking about. Compared to the sun's size, of course it is. Yeah. But it gives you an idea of how different the perspective is yeah. when you look at things like the sun. Mm. And the sun is a relatively small star. Wow. So Yeah, it's always about relativity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. But it's safe to, to observe the night sky because you can see the the sun through a telescope if you have the, the the proper filters but i would not recommend anyone to do that without the filters so it's always safe to observe the night sky yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. keep your eyes alive <laughs> yeah download some excellent apps that uh, help you find your way around the, the stars but after a while you you get used to seeing them and you recognize them and that's when the whole world opens up to you it's yeah you're in love i can hear (laughs) Uh, yeah but it's just an escape from all the craziness happening on earth right oh and there are a few twitter hacking twitter hacking russian hackers attacking covid19 research centers and stuff like that enough already of all this hacking stuff right (laughs) let's talk about something more progressive and fun like mm-hmm. i don't know a good event well i've got a topic that we can talk about good, yeah. good. <laughs> because yeah due to covid we can't really do skeptics in the pub right now right mm. but the uk skeptics have been very progressive in that regard because they started i think even in march or april and they already had like i think 15 or even more talks and i think pontus you're very active with them too right with the okay i skeptics. i'm always there listening in and i take part in the afterwards zoom meeting etc and I I've, I've helped with a little bit of things, but I wouldn't take, I didn't want to take too much credit. Uh, the UK people are doing most of the hard work. Absolutely. Yeah. And because the German skeptics said like, hey, that's such a good thing. They said, hey, why don't we put out some German skeptics in the pub online yes. material? So um, the German skeptics have a Germ- uh, yeah, German, obviously, talk <laughs> next week on the 27th of July. And it will be from our friend Holm Hümmler. Holm. Mm-hmm. Very good. Is it going to be on yeah. conspiracy theories? Yes. Or- okay. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's his. F- the epidemics of conspiracy myths. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's his uh, specialty, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of his specialties. What? One of his yeah. many specialties. Yeah, he's a physicist by training. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> oh, good. That's right. Right. Yeah, I, I thought we could have some good optimistic topic here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I might try to uh, tune in, although uh, I don't know much German. I'll see how, how much I get of, from it, but... Mm-hmm. 
Let's sure. check it out. I mean, th- that's the beauty of these things. They're online. You can do it whenever yeah. you want from all around the world, all around the globe. And uh, I took part or listened to, I should say, I didn't take part, but Susan Gerbic, our great friend with the Gorilla Skeptics on Wikipedia, and who actually introduced the two of us, Andras, once yes. upon a long ago. <laughs> she did something really, really interesting last night which I stayed up for. And that was uh, that she got contacted by a psychic in um, the US who said that I'm a real psychic and I'm a psychic and a skeptic. And she wanted to give Susan a a sort of real, quote unquote, reading. And Susan live streamed it on Facebook so we could all follow up what was happening. And now it's on YouTube. It was very, very interesting. And I'm afraid (laughs) to say, well, I'm sorry to say that it wasn't that flattering for the psychic. There was a very, very few hits. uh, And even if you are very, very generous, there was maybe half a hit uh, during uh, uh, more than an hour. But it was very interesting. Did she do the the reading only for Susan, or did she give it give it a go with others as well? No, it was only for Susan, and Susan did it on. It was, she was on a normal landline or telephone with with Susan, and uh, ah. Susan live streamed it, so we could see Susan, but not the psychic. And uh, the psychic didn't know that we were listening in, although it was all agreed that it would be recorded. So uh, it is now recorded and will I think it is already released on, on YouTube. I think it is because I saw it. Yeah. Yeah, And then, then of course, when the, that was all over, a few of us discussed it uh, over Zoom and uh, Richard Saunders was there. Mm-hmm. Celestia Ward was there from the, Squaring the Strange with Ben Radford. So and, and a few others that I didn't know, but we had a wonderful time and i didn't uh, go to bed until three in the morning so. <laughs> <laughs> nice. but those are the things you can do now with with uh, yeah. and i think quarantine sleep <laughs> yeah and, and the pandemic has well it's been possible all along but the pandemic has showed us how to do it and because out of necessity but anyway sleeping is only for the weak-minded yeah so. <laughs> <'Cause this> is, <laughs> yeah <laughs> You can sleep when you're dead. Yes. Yeah, that's what I'm planning on. <laughs> All right. So uh, I think we've had quite a busy week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had a quite a, quite an experience. Today, I had my first ever colonoscopy. From a certain point of view, it is as, as disgusting as it sounds. But, but... from another perspective, <laughs> it is really an amazing experience. I got to watch my large intestines on the screen while they were watching it. You should have live streamed that and see how many who wanted to see that. You know that this actually occurred to me? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, why I'm telling you this is because it's just fascinating Mm -hmm. what it looks like from the inside. Mm. I got reassured that there is no actual real issue at the moment, at least. I think the word they used was beautiful, wasn't it? Actually, they did. Yeah. They did. (laughs) Yeah, they actually praised me for my actions in cleaning out my intestines. Now you're just bragging. Yeah, I'm just bragging. (laughs) Even though I don't have experience with it, I I managed to to pull it off quite nicely. (laughs) Pull it off. Uh, Yeah. Anyhow. Yeah, but to be a bit serious, it's actually an important thing to do. And to do it also... Yes. Before something happens that's right. <laughs> at a certain age. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, I had a couple of symptoms that I uh, that made me uh, want to do this. But the other thing is that even the doctor who did the exam told me that it was about time. So I'm close to 40 years old and uh, it's highly recommended, especially that my mum had uh, bowel cancer 
uh, about five years ago, mm-hmm. it might go in the family. So they say that uh, everyone around this age should get a colonoscopy, and especially if someone is affected in the family. So this is why I wanted to mention it, not not just to brag about how beautiful my large intestines are, <laughs> but because it's important. So um, I remember when uh, Richard Saunders talked about uh, his little thing that he got removed from the neck, yeah. and it turned out to be um, initial phase melanoma. And that is important to get get things checked as quickly as possible and before actual shit happens. Pun not yeah, intended. Yeah, to go to the doctor and not take homeopathy. <laughs> yes, yeah, don't do take not homo- take homeopathy. And especially no. if you need a laxative, don't take a homeopathic laxative, please. Yeah. It won't work and it will upset your doctor who does the exam mm. big time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Won't be as beautiful as yours. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So enough of that shit. <laughs> Let's move on because we have a lot to talk about anyways. And um since you are with us again, Annika, and you were kind enough to take that role, uh you will be talking about this week in skepticism. What happened? <laughs> Yeah, so this week Carl Gustav Jung was born, but oh, obviously okay. not this week, but 145 years ago. News week. travels not so fast on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you know Carl Gustav Jung? Not personally, no. No, I was born very long <laughs> after he died. Have you heard of him? No, but seriously, of course. Yes, we have heard of him. Yeah, Louis, I have. And yes, yeah, we, we sure. have heard yes. of him. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For those who didn't hear of him yet, he was a Swiss um, psychiatrist and psychoanalyst and founded analytical psychology. So also influenced other fields like philosophy, theology, um, mm. Archaeology, so a lot of other fields with that. Mm. Yeah, apparently also archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you worked with Sigmund Freud for a while, but they decided to to divide their work after a while. And yeah, he developed several psychological concepts like extroversion and introversion, which is something like we still talk about, I think. So people say like, I'm a bit more introverted, I'm a bit more extroverted. And he pretty much created this con- this concept. Also created other concepts and also was an artist, a craftsman, a builder and a writer. So he was pretty busy. busy, Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And apparently he was also very interested in paranormal things. Mm, So like what? Well, he said that paranormal phenomena were that he called them parapsychic phenomena. And said you can totally research them, like actually like the the ESP, but not European Skeptics Podcast. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but he later got actually skeptical of his own idea, which is always a good thing, I would say. <laughs> so he was, for example, saying that coincidences can be meaningfully related to each other. So pretty much saying that due to synchronicity, as he calls it, that coincidences don't exist, which is... Interesting because this is, that's a field where I would say where, where science pretty much meets theology. Because if you say coincidences don't exist, it sounds a bit like fate. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, to sum that up, I would say Carl Gustav Jung was a very interesting guy. Um, very busy uh, scientist and yeah developed a lot of psychology that is still around and that on, on which people could build yeah but not all of his ideas have survived right i think a lot of the th- theories he came up with in psychology yeah. is now has now been rejected by at least the mainstream of psychology yes yeah, yeah but it's the same like with uh, sigmund freud yeah. it was just something yeah, that going to say had that. to be started pretty <laughs> much and then people could yeah. overcome it so to say but it's phenomenal how many people still hold up sigmund 
Jung Freud's and uh, Carl Gustav Jung's ideas as something that still has merit. I mean, scientifically speaking, they don't necessarily, but uh, some people still think along Freudian theories, yeah. which is a bit weird. Yeah. yeah, and like a lot of dream analysis still comes from oh, Freud, yeah. for example. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of things about sexual behavior and frustrations and all that stuff. And many of those have been overcome by other scientific theories because they just didn't hold water yeah. from a scientific But point of view. do you know where you can still find some of that? As, as a teacher, I encountered still some of the mm -hmm. theories because mm -hmm. they still say, say like with a theory of the mind and how children grow up, they still go back to Sigmund Freud at times yeah. for teachers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with the works of uh, Alexander Sutherland Neal. No. no. <laughs> He was the founder of the first democratic school probably in the world. It still goes on. That school is still operational in, um, I think, in Leston. Yeah, in Leston in the UK. I think it's uh, celebrating its 100th anniversary now, this year. So he came up with this idea that a democratically operating school can work for children. And it does. And, it, and it's amazing. But... He coupled all that with the Freudian ideas and uh, the, the Freudian mm -hmm. approach to, to child rearing. And uh, he liked to analyze the children. So along with giving them the freedom that they needed to develop into responsible people, he tried to analyze them. And in his analysis, he approached them with the Freudian approach. But it was at the beginning of the 20th century. So it's understandable that way. But now, when I read it in the early uh, 2000s, it's, it looked to me a little bit, it's old stuff. And it made me smile, but it doesn't necessarily mean that other things about his ideas are to be dismissed. Mm. Yeah, right. All right, so... Uh, another thing about going back to Jung, I know that one field that he has inspired quite a lot, which is mostly bullshit, actually, <laughs> and that still lives on. And that is the, all these personality tests, dividing people into mm -hmm. yes. green and red and yellow people, into introverts and extroverts and stuff. That's very much inspired by Jung, I'm told, and um, not very valid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially because it's sometimes still used to employ people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we sh shouldn't go back into that. But <laughs> if people want to go back to some episode that I don't remember the number of, I probably talked about this two years ago or something. There, there was this uh, person in Sweden. He's still around selling a lot of books about dividing people into red and yellow and green and yeah, blue and, persons. And he based his, his, uh, some of his works on Jung's ideas. He based it on other theories, which in turn was based on Jung. I'm not even sure that ah, okay. this guy okay. knows a lot about Jung. He seems to be very <laughs> okay. hmm, superficially educated, if I put it mm. politely. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I think I, uh, I read somewhere that he had an interest in alchemy as well, but from mostly from a historical point of view. Like uh, he tried to make a connection between alchemy and how people try to to make gold out of something that is not gold and he made the connection of with that and personal development how the person develops through that weird transformation that is something similar to alchemy so sounds a bit like steiner's theory oh, yeah. actually yeah 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 <laughs> so, oh could be could be yeah mm. all right thank you very much Annika. welcome <laughs> uh, that means that we're moving on to the next segment which is when pontus Pokes the Pope. 
Oh yes, so it's been uh, uh, we had an interview last uh, episode, so it's been two weeks since I poked the Pope and uh, quite a lot of things have happened in the Catholic Church and with Francis. He has uh, approved moving forward with a handful of people on their way now to become saints for the same kind of bullshit reasons that he always uses. He also got his robe all in a knot about <laughs> Turkey's decision to make Hagia Sophia in, in Istanbul to a mosque, which I, I agree with him, actually. It's a terrible idea, but uh, that's what they're doing there. And he has approved that the International Association of Exorcists issued a new handbook, and it's not called Exorcism for Dummies, but I think it should have been. <laughs> Uh, so all that aside, I think I will let that pass and I will focus on another handbook uh, or rather a set of guidelines that was issued last week about how to handle allegations of sex abuse within the church. Quietly. Yeah, quietly. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the document, a so-called vademecum, that uh, he likes his Latin, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. Vademecum. I think that means go with me or come with me. But it's also uh, uh, the name for a certain t kind of document that is issued. Guidelines, I guess. Uh, it was issued not directly by Francis, but it was issued by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, also known as... The Inquisition. Oh, yeah, that is <laughs> the Inquisition. Inquisition. Very well done. You get a cigar. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a guide on how to apply three older documents about sex abuse. One each issued by John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and one of Francis himself. Not very fascinating stuff to read, actually. Legalese is the term I think of, written like legal text, pretty dry. But it's not terribly long and it's not impossible to get through, and we will post a link to that. And I, of course, have my observations on that. First of all, it clarifies and summarizes the other three documents, and it emphasizes, of course, Francis' latest document, which adds things like that all claims must be taken seriously and has to be reported. And of course, and you can't, it is not allowed to solve an abuse problem by relocating the accused bad guy. So that's good, at least superficially, sounds good. But if you analyze it properly, I think it is a quite problematic document. Um, these are my reflections. On the good side, it talks about treating the alleged victim quote unquote, with dignity and respect. So that's fine. Actually, it mentions that about 20 times in a rather short document. But only once it talks about protecting the victim's rights. But all right, it's still there. You have to protect the victim's rights. That's good. Uh, once it even mentions making sure that you protect other possible victims that you may not have heard of yet. So that, that's good. But speaking about protection, if you make a text search in the document uh, for the words protect and protection, then you find that four times it mentions protection of the common good and avoiding scandals. And three times it talks about protecting the good name of all involved, including the perpetrator then. Great. I actually, it doesn't even say perpetrator in the document. It always says the accused, even in the section after where you have come to the point where you've established somebody's guilt. It's 
you're called the accused. <laughs> so that sort of tells you where their biases are. Yeah. And only once, if you go back to the searching for protect or protection, only once the document uh, mentions uh, that you have to protect the victim. So um, not really the, the angles. How long is this document again? It is. That's interesting that you say if you print it out, it's probably around, uh, I would guess, eight to ten pages. But it is the document online is a continuous document, so it doesn't have page breaks. So I can't exactly tell you. So, but that means that in an at least eight page long document, yeah. they mention the total of one time yeah. that the victim should be protected as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the truth is that the focus is almost always on the accused. So the word accused, quote unquote, is used twice more often than um, the word victim. And in over 30 places, it mentions the words penalty or penance. That is how to treat the accused. But it doesn't talk a lot about a victim at all. So, um, and it's good. I mean, of course, you need to know how to handle the bad guy. Sure, that, that's important. But there's a few things that is totally missing. Uh, I would say three things. First of all, it never talks about the responsibility of the church as an organization for any of these crimes. It's all about the accused and nothing as well about prevention. And I think that's rather spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. Secondly, there is no firm statement about secular law. It says on a few places that you have to respect the local law and follow the local law. But I would have expected one big headline saying, before you do anything else, call the fucking police. But that's not in the document. You don't necessarily have to call the police at least well it's because they want to protect everyone mm -hmm. ah exactly mm -hmm. they're protecting everyone including the church as an organization <laughs> and the third point i want to make um, totally absent is any suggestions on how to make reparations or compensate or even care for the quote-unquote alleged vi victim uh, and it's always the alleged victim so yeah i don't know it could be a, the alleged perpetrator but no so there's no, nothing about remedies directed towards the victim. And I didn't really expect them to put in a you know, price list to say how much money to give to each victim for what you know, different crimes that were committed. But how about a suggestion in the document about offering therapy or reimbursing medical bills or something like that? So you probably would say that, yeah, no, they probably have good intentions with it, this document, but it shows how much the church always focuses inward on itself, on the scandals that abuse may bring, and uh, doesn't deal too much with the uh, victims. And it tells you what to do and not to do with pedophiles, but never does it try to look from the victim's side, except for saying that, quote, treat them with respect, end quote. So uh, yeah, if you uh, treat them with respect, you don't abuse them. No, so. no, that, that is, actually that should be the first thing. <laughs> but even if you look at the words, like this already makes me angry. I have to say, yeah. if you speak of alleged victim yeah. and the accused all the time, it's just like it already takes credibility away. Yeah. Oh yeah. Actually, I think I've never heard the term alleged victim outside of this document. Exactly, alleged <laughs> bad guy. Yes. Yeah. Alleged rapist or whatever, but alleged victim it sounds like you it's yeah. something wrong with being a victim yeah i, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> when even one of your employees representing your company does something that is unlawful then they will put it all on the company 
and the company will be dragged into it as well, and the repercussions will be severe. Mm. But the Catholic Church is an empl employer. Mm. So a priest, any kind of cleric, is an employee of the Catholic Church. So they are responsible for their actions, not, not from their own point of view only, but also from the from the church's point of view. So this is why they should be punished for their actions when they abuse sexually abuse children, women, mm -hmm. anyone. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I just thought I'd mention that. Yeah. The problem is that it, they give them the benefit of the doubt based on them being Catholics. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. What I also want to mention is that the church is also a huge employer in other countries. So not only for mm -hmm. priests, but in Germany, for example, a lot of kindergartens and schools are owned by the Catholic or the oh, Protestant yeah. church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. true. That's true. Here mm -hmm. in Hungary as well. Or charity organizations. Yeah, that yeah. happens here as well. Yeah. Okay. I think it's time for us to move on to the news because we have a lot of them. <laughs> yes. Well, having fact-checkers around is quite refreshing, I think, when they publish their material bit by bit. The world just becomes a better place. <laughs> so <laughs> when they team up and as a result of their collaboration, they come out with quite a comprehensive report on what crazy stuff has been making rounds across Europe, one tends to have this weird sensation that not all is lost. Hmm. <laughs> At least we have a clear idea of what needs to be dealt with. Recently, such a report was published as a joint effort by five independent fact-checking organizations uh, from five different countries. AFP from France, Correctiv from Germany. Did I say it right? Um, yeah, probably. Okay. <laughs> Pagella Politica, or Facta, from Italy. Maldita S. Uh, from Spain and Full Fact from the UK. I'm not very worried about that pronunciation. <laughs> we shared the report on our Facebook page, by the way, but I thought it would be a good idea to explain it in a bit more detail here. It's basically a collection of all the information published in the total of their 645 articles combined among all of them, published over the month of March and April, all related to COVID-19 somehow, either by fact-checking or debunking certain claims or providing factual information about the pandemic, the virus itself, vaccination in general, etc. So although the report is recent, the data is not so much. So it's from back in March and April, but it provides a pretty good overview of what the hottest topics and pieces of misinformation were during this period. And it also helps us gain an insight into how these claims found their way through parts of Europe, uh, because they managed to mark the dates these claims first appeared in their countries. But going forward, it also might prove useful to have a look at what kinds of misinformation were more successful in, in holding ground in either of these countries. So what were the main issues that these fact-checkers came across? There were common and local themes. Local themes included immigration for Germany mm. and pets <laughs> transmitting the disease in the UK. Of course, the usual claim that the virus is man-made was a very important common theme across all five countries. It was significantly more widespread in France and Italy for some reason, based on the number of fact checks conducted in these countries. So it doesn't say a lot about how popular these ideas are or these pieces of misinformation, but how much the fact checkers dealt with them. Then, of course, magical cures and remedies managed to get into fact-checkers' focus as well, with Spain being the leader among the countries 
again, based on what percentage of fact-checking articles dealt with that in the country. But interestingly, for Germany and the UK, it became much more important compared to other themes. We also have a timeline for a possible spreading pattern of one of these claims, namely that gargling with salt water of, or vinegar will help you combat the Jesus. virus. I think we've all come across that. I've heard it, yeah. Haven't tried it, though. Yeah. <laughs> and the interesting thing is that it appeared in Spain first, in March the 7th, then two days later, it found its way to Germany, then a week later, it was spotted in France and the UK as well. And by the time it was first identified in Italy, it was already April 16th. And uh, similar patterns could be noticed for the claim that fumigation from helicopters was a way of disinfecting people. It's not true. What? Still made it to four out of the four, four, five countries. Misinformation in politics appears to have been the leading issue in France, Italy and Spain. But things like the disadvantages of wearing masks, 5G causing the infection, Bill Gates being behind the pandemic, were also among the most common claims that were mentioned in the report. It's funny how this is both uplifting for the achievement on, on the fact checkers side and at the same time, very depressing. As you read through all the misinformation that can be found out there, it's just mind-blowing. And with these probable spreading patterns shown, it certainly looks like the pandemic itself. Mm. It is the same kind of distribution pattern. Yeah, yeah. sort of meta, isn't it? It is, yeah. 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 So yeah. the title could not be more fitting because it was Infodemic COVID-19 in Europe, a visual analysis of disinformation. Go check it out either on our Facebook page where we shared it a couple of days ago or by following the link on our website. Wow. But it's really meta, like that misinformation spreads like a virus. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. And it's been told by manufacturers and public speakers and uh, science educators. But I think this report is so interesting because it shows you graphically how it happens. And when you see the dates when one or two of these ideas were first identified in one of the countries and you see how it made it its way through the borders wow. it's amazing mm. it, it was transferred from one country to the other at least in a way if we base our assumption that it went from one country to the other based only on this it's a bit of a post hoc kind of argument but the patterns seem to show some kind of movement so it's an assumption still, hmm. but it's interesting. What would really interest me is like if it also traveled to countries that pretty much could contain COVID really well, like New Zealand. So mm -hmm. that would, of course, that's outside of Europe, but it would really interest me if hmm. it if misinformation about COVID spreads alongside COVID or if it's like it is, if it's a separate thing. I think it's uh, the best time for us to call out for a feedback. So if there is someone from New Zealand who listens to the show, then feel free to get in touch. Please do and uh, let us know how it goes. And if you have uh, sources as well to back up your uh, argument, then uh, we would be even more grateful. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and completely related to what you just said, Andras, they did a survey in Germany about Corona conspiracy beliefs too. Mm -hmm. And according to that, every fifth adult in Germany actually believes that the media and politics are fear-mongering. <laughs> so... <laughs> that COVID is actually not that bad. It's actually just a cold. And about 29% believe that 
secret powers are behind the pandemic. <laughs> so that it's like a Chinese weapon or that there's a connection between 5G and COVID. <sighs> yeah, or that Bill Gates is behind all this. Obviously, he's behind so, everything. Yeah. yeah. Good thing that like I liked a bit was that about half of the people asked were also worried about a lot of fake news regarding COVID. So It's like a lot of people, yeah, believe in, in conspiracy myths. Yeah, about half are also worried about the fake news. So, yeah, <laughs> I just thought it uh, goes along pretty well with um, with the European study that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah Now, the problem is that what they are worried about as fake news is probably real data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hmm. it's like hydrochloroquine doesn't work or something <laughs> like that. And they're like, that's right. fake news. Yeah, but what worries <laughs> me is that there is an overwhelming amount of data coming out on a daily basis about what it causes the virus so now we're we're just in the phase of learning how bad the damage can be that it does that it, it has neurological damage and long-lasting neurological damage that it can do it can lead to a lot of blood clotting in different organs in your body not only your your lungs and your heart but even in veins and, and arteries in the legs, in the limbs. Mm. So it is quite serious and they have found the link. So this is no influenza. No, no, This no. is much more no, serious no. than that. No. And the more we know about the virus, the more obvious it becomes. Yeah. And I think as a skeptics, we should always try to stick to the scientific consensus and just try to follow the evidence in a way. <laughs> yeah, but that, that has become harder than it used to be. Yes. And yes. part of it, I blame on these preprint servers that have become yeah. an everyday we publish before peer reviews yeah. yeah so now everything can come out and it makes it to the news into the news and the news outlets report it because they need the content and get the clicks and the result of that is that some stories go out prematurely without having gone through peer review properly so this is like a public peer review in a way it's quite good that it has a much wider scope in terms of peer review because much more people can have access to the actual paper. But the problem is the same with, with what happened with... Uh, we, we talk about that a lot with Andrew Wakefield's article. Mm. It made it to the public. From that moment on, it didn't matter what happened in the scientific field, that it, the paper got retracted and he was kicked out from the, yeah. the register of doctors in the UK. Yeah. Nobody cares yeah. because the damage has already been done. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you know what, Dandrush? Yeah. He's still around. Andrew Wakefield is still around. Fucking moron. Cannot take away an idea that has been gotten out there. Then it's, you know, any retraction is useless and right. especially Andrew Wakefield he's still there talking about his uh, nonsense ideas so uh, you know just to back up Wakefield was and still is the the ex-doctor who fals falsified research to publish a fake study in 1999 about MMR vaccinations against measles, mumps and rubella and how that could cause autism, which is nonsense. But even, uh, and he lost his medical license and uh, everything was uh, sort of corrected. However, it took a long time to do that. And even after losing his medical license, he's still there promoting the idea about how dangerous vaccinations are. And now, of course, he's making up bullshit about a corona vaccine 
that, as we know, doesn't even exist yet. <laughs> he, and I can't believe the... I, I, was, I was so disgusted by this man. In May, he actually quoted Nelson Mandela. Like he was somehow to be compared with him, saying, quote, better to die as a free man than live as a slave, end quote. Apropos Corona vaccine. So he, he says, <laughs> better to be dead than to be vaccinated. That's his message. So he says, if you get vaccinated, you're a slave. Yeah. You should die for your right uh, not to get vaccinated. And unfortunately, a lot of people, maybe they will. That he dares to make that comparison is just... Yeah, it, it... I lack words. I lack words. I... Balls my blood. Yeah, yeah. Jävla shit. Is that a, a word in, in Swedish? No, it was actually quite a mild... Uh, mild. Uh... Say something that is not mild. No, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. You have to punch me and then I'll do it. But I can't do it spontaneously like this. I'm too polite. Me punching you would trigger you much more easily to say something like that than this fucking moron? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, because I I can't do it uh, sort of deliberately. I'm a You're too person. nice a person. Yeah. I am. Very nice. <laughs> Some people even like me. I've noticed that. Yes. <laughs> Both. But the big problem with Wakefield is that a lot of people actually agree with him and they, they believe him. The anti-vax movement is spreading uh, their stupid nonsense everywhere and they are building their momentum now until there is a vaccine to argue against. They're already mm. spreading these, this information. There was a recent poll uh, in uh, the UK that said one in six participants of this poll would either definitely or probably not get vaccinated when a vaccine is available. And if that is correct, that may be enough to prevent us from stopping the spread. Mm -hmm. Estimates say that to get rid of COVID-19 and to reach so-called herd immunity, the vaccination rate must be somewhere between 70 and 90 percent. And if one-sixth of the population refuse to take the vaccine, and there will always be a few that cannot take it for, for medical reasons, yeah. then it, it, we may not get there. We're screwed then. Then we're screwed. Yeah. Pretty much. And it seems to me that like the anti-vaxxers got more extreme in a way because some changed their mind and said like, yeah, for COVID we will get a vaccine. And the majority of them said like, no, never. And this is like this totally showing their plan. And <laughs> yeah, it just seems that like the whole thing got more extreme through through COVID. Yeah. No, I hope uh, that sounds actually encouraging. I hope they start infighting between them and they can't agree. That would be good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So people should be stopped when they spread. They are spreading misinformation. A couple of months ago, when we talked about Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orbán's extreme power gains, you might remember. Yeah. Yeah. Or the urbanization. Yeah, the urbanization of the country. <laughs> it happened long before that, actually, mm. or started long before that. Mm. But yeah. if memory serves, I also mentioned that they had made steps to stop COVID-19 falsehoods and dangerous misinformation from spreading. It was controversial as it basically meant they could charge anyone based on the government officials' own interpretation of what constituted a disinformation campaign that, let's say, hindered government actions against the pandemic by spreading fear and troubling citizens. So it was a concern that it's nothing more than yet another step forward for Orban's absolute powers, where he can simply ignore people's rights. And that concern was quite justified, as some people were charged for their legitimate criticism of the government's actions. But 
it seems like some actual disinformation campaigners have been caught in the net as well. Mm. Yeah, three cases were opened back in the end of April with investigations about Facebook pages that used disinformation as clickbait. One of these had started in January and it was disguised as one of the country's main commercial news shows. Mm -hmm. So obviously it was easy to mislead people. Fake news items there included the alleged sudden death of someone on the streets of Budapest, allegedly linked to COVID-19. The same was said to have happened with a Chinese man also in Budapest. The migrant card was played as well. Obviously. Mm. <laughs> ah, it's all the foreigners' fault. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. With uh, the alleged presence of illegal Chinese immigrants, all infected with COVID-19. Oh, Jesus. Their Hungarian counterparts were also allegedly hospitalized because of them. Right. So, obviously, it generated a lot of anger. And when people are angry, they try to act. And a way of acting is sharing a page, uh, at least on Facebook. So mm. this is how we change the world from our armchairs. These were all reshared thousands of times, these claims. But now it seems like the guy behind the fake news site got convicted, finally, last week. Uh, he has been sentenced for 10 months in prison with a one-year, six-month probation period mm -hmm. and a fine of 390,000 Hungarian forints, which uh, equals about 1200 euros which is not a that's not too much it's not too uh, much no and the prison sentence was uh, yeah he got a probation period so <sighs> it's not really a prison sentence is it no, no so he's not actually in prison no he's not actually in prison and he, he won't go to prison okay they didn't revoke his facebook page either did they uh, i well, think the hungarian government can't i think do they that, did uh, uh, facebook did mm. but i don't really know what to think about this actually so mm. I have mixed feelings about this. I think these people deserve to be convicted as they do a lot of harm to society yeah. as a whole. Yeah. But when it's the result of the establishment of a dictatorial regime, I'm not very comfortable with that, with this kind of decision. Yeah. yeah, because you never know who they will convict next. Exactly. So I cannot be very happy about this conviction because of that. So I would like to see that happen in a democratic system yeah. that yeah. people who who do harm to society then society punishes them and uh, not just a dictatorial regime. Yes. Correct. Yeah, so did you hear about um, these two hairdressers from Germany with COVID where nobody got infected? No. It was it was a <laughs> bit of a local uh, news item, but what we can learn out of it is that masks are really important <laughs> yeah they are <laughs> yeah because they uh, like they both had covid they didn't notice they only noticed it like after a few days or week and um they had already had been in contact with a lot of uh, customers but nobody got infected because they were wearing masks and that's why it's very interesting what happens in austria right now because austria had mandatory mask use for some time mm -hmm. and since june um they they weakened these restrictions and promptly got a surge of new cases mm -hmm. so it's pretty much four times higher now than when they stopped wearing masks mm. and they're of course like it's not super high yet but they're of course afraid of of a second wave now and they said like yeah then everybody has to just be responsible and wear masks voluntarily but you guys can probably guess how well that worked <laughs> Yeah, of course. <laughs> so yeah, they're debating now uh, to make it mandatory again. So it's it's a huge political issue right now in in Austria. I understand when uh, leadership uh, shies away from making something mandatory like that because because of the public tension that it generates. Yeah. Obviously, especially with all the misinformation spreading around. 
But uh, I remember how good I felt when I saw a press conference that uh, Kurt, Sebastian Kurz gave, mm-hmm. uh, the, the chancellor, the Austrian chancellor. And he was behind a plexi wall and wearing a mask. So that was like, yes, man, this is how you lead by example, yeah. right? He got it, yeah. <laughs> you got it right. This is how you lead by example. And then they made the decision of making it not mandatory. Yeah, that was a mistake. Yeah. There's also a famous picture of Merkel who is wearing a mask and she's seeing a colleague who is wearing the mask under his nose. And you can on the picture, you can actually see her pointing at his nose. Nice. So it's nice. <laughs> now, Orban doesn't wear a mask at all. <laughs> no matter where he, go, where he goes, it doesn't. Yeah. It's tough like that. Right. <laughs> Why do I keep talking about him? I'm obsessed, some would say. Or, no, I'm not. Or occupied. Yes. Bye. Bye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm preoccupied with him yeah. and his regime. <laughs> living in the country. So. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to say. Like, you're living there. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it, it's an issue. <laughs> Anyhow, going back to the topic of um, online misinformation and spreading misinformation. Well, how do people generate income? from running websites or YouTube channels? It's easy. By giving room to ads Mm. next to their content, a certain percentage of which goes to the owner, of course. The more clicks they get, uh, the more income they generate. And disinformation pays pretty well in that sense because those sensationalized contents bring in a lot of visitors, right? People share their stories like crazy, so it's something they can build on. And Google Ads is a huge online advertising platform. Their advertising revenue in 2019 amounted to almost 135 billion US dollars. Wow. That's quite a bit. So when they decide to let go of a significant segment of the advertising campaigns running through their system is a large step. But it's a necessary one if they want to do their bit in stopping the spread of misleading claims and disinformation. So several news outlets published that Google would ban advertisements that either promote coronavirus-related conspiracy theories or are put next to stories that spread those theories. Ah. Which is quite a step. It is, yeah. <laughs> Guilt by association. Mm. Oh, Unrightly yeah. so, in exactly. a way. Exactly. Yeah. So if you generate that content, and because of that content, you generate a lot of traffic, uh, that is beneficial for your advertisers, but we won't allow that. Mm. They also refer to some of Google's earlier policy changes, these news outlets, that already prohibit ad and publisher content that makes any kind of harmful claims regarding disease prevention and cures that completely lack evidence of efficacy. These include anti-vaccine promotions as well, for example. But the new change will be enforced starting on the 18th of August and can bring about actions on an article-by-article level as well as removing ads from complete sites, effectively demonetizing these sites. So that can be quite a push towards adhering to regulations, right? Yeah, it's good. But I'm afraid I'm a bit skeptical about these actions, to be honest. Uh Google and Facebook are the biggest players in the field, and all things considered, they're in the game for the money. And money comes from traffic and transactions. So as far as I can assess that, it looks to me that they managed to word these new rules vaguely enough so that there can be loopholes and there can be those little tricks that uh, they can avoid actually taking down certain web- websites if they if they want to. I'm really hoping that I'm wrong about that, but I don't know. 
for some reason, people don't seem to punish these giants for their inaction and lack of responsibility, like they tend to do with politicians, where where they do, and not not everywhere. So we'll just have to wait and see how, how it goes. But let me say, I'm a bit skeptical. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's also that, like, Facebook also owns Instagram and WhatsApp, right? So, like, oh, yeah. there's something that where you can spread misinformation really well, but they're not really ads there. Yeah. Or, like, there are ads there, but they are not as strictly regulated as the Google ads on websites. So, yeah. there's still, even, even if it works really well, which we should be skeptical <laughs> about, then there's still a long way to go. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Right, okay, so talked about uh, Andrew Wakefield and anti-vax sentiments and let's get back to that a little bit. We've talked before in another episode, I think it was episode 215, about the Good Thinking Society in the UK challenging the PSA, that's the Professional Standards Authority, for their accreditation of the Society of Homeopaths. So what does that have to do with anti-vax? Well, what we talked about then was that the PSA was setting up strict conditions on the Society of Homeopaths for the renewal of the accreditation of the Society of Homeopaths, which was what the Good Thinking Society wanted all along. But wouldn't you know it, now the homeopaths have already got themselves into trouble for promoting anti-vax nonsense. And that was one of the main conditions laid down by the PSA. And it's not just anyone in the Society of Homeopaths that has broken this condition. It's none other than Sue Pilkington, their newly appointed Safeguarding and Professional Standards Director. And her specific job is and was to work with the PSA to make sure that they follow the rules, right? Mm -hmm. But it turns out she is an anti-vaxxer herself. She has spread uh, anti-vax info on her social media, even though it was before she was appointed, which was in June, I believe. But the PSA has noticed and they have now launched an emergency review to look into the matter. So, I, 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 you know, you must even admire the level of incompetence of the (laughs) homeopaths there. They appointed this idiot to that role and they must have known about her views on on, uh, uh, vaccinations because Mm. it was public on the the internet. But I think uh, maybe maybe it's just that they couldn't find a member in the whole organization that wasn't anti-vax. I think that's quite likely, Mm -hmm. actually. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised. So we'll see what happens now. I hope they lose their accreditation. There's no need for uh, an official body in any country to acknowledge homeopaths. They are quacks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And there's actually another country in in Europe that completely goes along that that line. Because Russia's Commission Against Pseudoscience has called the health ministry to actually ban homeopathy. Ban it? (laughs) So they think, yeah, homeopathy will still be popular, but the debate has been opened now to actually ban it or to at least take its medicine status away. And they did that before in 2017. It just took some years for the urgency to sink in because people always think that homeopathy is actually harmless. And what a lot of people say is like, yeah, it's not effective, but it also doesn't hurt. But that's exactly where people are wrong. And that's what the Russian Commission Against Pseudoscience has now stated again. They say, among other things, homeopathy is wasting your money. It's 
distracting you from effective treatment, but it's also violating the principles of medical ethics mm -hmm. and it's undermining rational thinking in a society. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say let's hope that Russia's commission against pseudoscience can make a change, but will be a huge challenge as in every country that is uh, debating about homeopathy right now. Right. Who would have thought that Russia would be our hope in the in the fight against yes. the yeah. pseudoscience? <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Well, actually, I do have my similar concerns about Russia trying to ban uh, homeopathy that I, I do have with Hungary convicting people for spreading misinformation. Yeah. It's like, eh, yeah. I'm not comfortable it feels a bit uncomfortable. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, I agree. Yeah. 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 It should be a consensual yeah. decision by That's a society right. to ban right. it. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. Based on science, not on, on dictators. Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. I have more about the good thinking society, actually. We have a good friend, of course, at Good Thinking, Marsh or Michael Marshall, and he's been working since September last year in supporting the BBC in creating a documentary which follows the stories of two cancer patients. Uh, it's not a happy story, but it's a very necessary one to tell. These patients, unfortunately, went down the alternative route to try to cure their conditions. And it was, I almost said, of course, it was not working. Both of them eventually died from their illnesses. The documentary includes undercover footage taken at a thermography clinic. And I don't really know what the thermography, what that is, but uh, it's probably something with heat therapy or something like that. Yeah, it sounds like getting, like with heat, getting an image or something. Yeah, that's yeah, like what it sounds yeah like. that, that's right. That's yeah, it's like it a is. body image based on your heat distribution. And uh, they claim that they can tell you what illnesses you have based on your heat distribution. Uh, okay. Do they use infrared for that? Probably. <laughs> I'm not sure. But isn't that radiation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's <laughs> electromagnetic radiation, actually. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. this clinic that they had this undercover footage from was run by homeopaths who have claimed uh, that they are able to reverse cancer using homeopathy and dietary supplements. And they claim also that biopsies and mammograms actually spread tumors. So you should avoid that. Mm. And I, I think uh, I'll quote directly from the Good Thinking uh, Society website where Marsh is quoted as saying, the BBC investigation perfectly demonstrates how people in a vulnerable position can be drawn into an ecosystem of extreme diets, supplements, coffee enemas, herbal balms and homeopathic remedies and how ineffective thermography scans give patients false sense of the progress of their disease. The alternative cancer industry is rife with dangerous misinformation where false claims lead very ill people to make tragic decisions about their health. Clearly, not enough is being done by regulators and the law to protect people from such dangerously misleading falsehoods. And until sufficient safeguards are put in place, people will continue to be misled by the seductive claims of the cancer, quote unquote, cure industry, end quote. Hmm. So very well said. Uh, uh, we agree, of course, fullheartedly. And these are terrible stories. Yeah, heartbreaking. Yeah. But it's great that the documentary has come out because these stories are not unique. It happens all the time, but it's very rare that you hear about them. Obviously, if people pass away, they can't really tell their story. And very often... Uh, the, the families are so exhausted by the tragedy that they don't want to come forward or, or even sometimes they they still believe that it was the right 
way to go and it just didn't work that time or it was too late or whatever that's right or they feel guilty and don't want to oh, yeah. like look into that very yes yeah. absolutely yeah. that that i'm sure that <laughs> happens too and um there's one thing which is unfortunate about this documentary and that is that you can only view it from within the uk at least on the official bbc website but uh, we will still link to it. Uh, so if you're in the UK, you, sh- you should check it out. And we will also link to to the Good Thinking Society's webpage where you can read more about this. Edsard Ernst, of course, also blogged about it because it was about homeopaths. And that's his mm-hmm. specialty. Yeah, it's unbelievable. The ocean of nonsense and quackery and everything that we need to deal with. And uh, communicating science and uh, and trying to convey the messages of science is, is is really difficult. So, being a science communicator of any sort at any level in the age of disinformation is not easy. As anyone could testify who has ever tried to convey the message of science to a misled audience, <laughs> the more emotionally invested we are in the topic, the more likely we are to dismiss the science when it doesn't agree with us. But even though it affects a lot of people around the world, this issue has not been widely researched yet how much hardship science communicators need to put up with. So researchers from Dublin City University, the Irish Cancer Society and the University of Oxford conducted an international survey to try and get a better picture of what people with extensive experience in communicating medical science have to endure from their audiences. 142 of these prominent communicators were invited to take part. The defining factors were... At least a thousand Twitter followers and experience in medical science communication on social and traditional media platforms. They got 101 responses to work with and the results of the survey (laughs) were published in the BMJ Open as an open access article that I highly recommend everyone to read. So, what were their findings? Almost 92% of the respondents experienced some kind of abusive behaviour with about 70% going through persistent harassment. Wow. What's shocking is that more than 1 in 20 has at some point experienced physical violence and intimidation as well, including actual death threats. Yeah, so we, we are joking at the end of the, the outro of the show about uh, sending death threats. We have never got one, but uh, we are not doing that kind of outreach with this show. I think we're still preaching to the choir in a way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, these people are really putting it all out there and they're confrontational occasionally. And this is the, the result of that. Complaints made to employers, professional bodies or threats to take legal actions against them were among the experiences of almost 40% of all the respondents. Mm. We're talking about slap lawsuits defamation claims, attempts to get people fired, etc. 40%. So no wonder that a little bit short of two-thirds reported some sort of negative mental health effect, like depression, anxiety and stress. The latter I find a bit too vague, actually, but I'm not saying this to question the result. It's what it is. It's completely self-reporting, so we're talking about perceptions here. But it's still quite high that two-thirds yeah. When you consider how people usually become science communicators, I'm, I'm pretty sure being forced to do this is extremely rare. I don't have the data to back me up, mm. but this is not something you go into by being forced to do so. Maybe by your own passion. <laughs> yes. 
people choose to interact with the public and do outreach out of enthusiasm and and a sense of duty. So with that in mind, two-thirds is a painfully high proportion of people reporting mental repercussions as a result of something they choose to do in the first place. Mm. I say that says a lot about our world. Yes. One in five of the respondents had to seek police advice or legal counsel associated with their public outreach activities as well. Well, I know a science communicator who um, has a secret address because yes. they received so much, so many death threats that it wasn't safe. That is just, yeah. uh, it's just wrong. Yes. <laughs> it shouldn't be like yes. that. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you know what, what bugs me the most? These people doing the extra work of communicating medical science to the public while having a job as a physician, a researcher, or something in the field of medical science, reported neutral poor or non-existent support from their employer or professional body in one third of the cases. Wow. So only two thirds of them so, were supported by their employers or their, their professional bodies. Yeah, that's outrageous. It is outrageous. Yes. Uh, we should be proud of these people. Yeah. Professional bodies should be proud of these people. And it's still the case all around the world, but in some countries especially, that those who are communicating science are being a bit looked down on yeah. by the actual researchers that, who, who right. don't communicate that much, but they do the research yeah. because they don't represent that level of scientific activity. Yeah. But that is just bollocks. Yeah. It shouldn't yeah. be considered like that. And Edzard Ernst wrote a blog post about this, and he lists a few of the actual accounts, which is... A terrible read. So if you start walking through them, some of them look familiar to those who try to counter misinformation on a daily basis. And he's no exception to the abuses and harassments himself. The seriousness of, of which this survey tried to assess is something that he experienced firsthand. He was harassed by, by Prince Charles. Exactly, exactly. Not <laughs> none other but than Prince Charles. And I believe we need to be supportive of the, of the community of science and especially medical science communicators, understanding ever more deeply the phenomenon and try to work it out. Because the job they do is important. It is to make the world a slightly better place. And let me close this with Edward Ernst's words from his own blog about why he does what he does. Mm -hmm. And I quote, Why do I work tirelessly trying to inform consumers about so-called alternative medicine? Because in view of the plethora of often dangerous misinformation, it is hugely important to get the word out to the men and women in the street. I pity the ones who regularly allege that I do all this because of the money I earn from such activity. On the whole, it costs me money. In fact, I do what I do because I hope it might stimulate rational thought help people to make wise therapeutic decisions, make a small contribution to public health, and perhaps occasionally even save a life. And the threats which I continue to receive merely indicate that I might be doing this job well and prove how important a task really is. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I could not agree more yes. with that. Uh, he's a hero. And we admire Edzard Ernst for what he does. Yeah, we do. <laughs> and the others as well. All right, totally switch to another topic, a classic <laughs> story for skeptics. And this is the Dyatlov mystery. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Dyatlov, Dyatlov, Dyatlov mystery. It's Russian, so I, I don't know how to... Mm -hmm. Jelena, where are you? I can't <laughs> pronounce it. So this, so, but just to follow up this, because this has been a long-standing story within the skeptical tradition, if you will. It happened 
all the way back in 1959 in Russia, or rather in the Soviet Union at the time. H- have you heard about this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have? Yeah. Now, I, I, I didn't. No, I, I th- it's a long time ago. So, so They mysteriously disappeared, right? Yeah, exactly. In 1959, nine young adults died during a winter camping trip in a pass that is now known as the Dyatlov Pass after one of the young men who was in the group. I did, I did hear about that. Sorry. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you may not remember, name, uh, yeah. recognize the name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the bodies were not found until many weeks later, and actually four of them uh, didn't turn up until four months later when the snow melted in the spring. And many things were very strange with this tragedy. They apparently cut their way out of their tent from the inside instead of getting out through the, the door and and fled from something. And some of them in their underwear and uh, without shoes in, in the snow. And they had built a fire somewhere away from their camp later on where a couple of them uh, were found later on. Other bodies lay scattered in different places and some had fractured ribs and one had severe blows to the head. Uh, their bodies had a strange orange color and their clothes were radioactive. One woman was missing her tongue and one of the men had no eyes. And there were reports of UFO sightings and other speculations uh, that included secret Soviet military tests. And all info about the tragedy was classified by the Soviet authorities. So big mystery. Now... Almost 60 years later, the Russian authorities have released a new report and their conclusion is much more mundane uh, than aliens or anything like that. Uh, What they said likely happened was that the group was caught in a blizzard with high winds and and down to 45 centigrades below zero. I would say that's quite cold, even for me, and I love cold. That's very cold, especially if it's uh, windy. Yeah. Uh, And what they think happened was that the tent was hit by an avalanche that blocked the door of the tent. So they had to cut up uh, the back of the tent with a knife to flee that way, and just no time to get uh, dressed or anything. And then they probably got lost in the dark, some tried to make a fire while, while others tried to find their way back to the tent to get probably more supplies or something. All of them died by hypothermia and the damages to the bodies is probably due to animals. And as for the radioactive clothes, uh, the probable cause is from the lanterns which they were using. They had a mantle around the flame uh, that has to be exchanged once in a while and at the time uh, in the bad old days or good old days those uh, mantles uh, had uh, small amounts of thorium in them Mm. so when you you exchange that you you get contamination on your clothes so now it's sort of solved then it's been a mystery for a long time or or rather some skeptics have uh, said it's not such a big mystery for uh, but but Anyway, it's good to have a good official final report. Of course, it will not convince the conspiracy theorists out there. And <laughs> and, I, and in a way, I can understand them. I mean, Russian authorities are not actually known to be that reliable. But I, in this case, I would say it's probably something like that. 
that happened. Yeah, if you look at like Occam's razor, it's just <laughs> you look at the most likely thing, and I would just say that UFOs are a bit less likely <laughs> than an avalanche. Uh, yes. Yeah, and yes. Uh, aliens are not crazy either. So in such a bad weather, they would not attempt to land there anyway. Yep. So maybe they tried to land and they re- they accidentally caused this avalanche to happen. Oh, and yeah. And then they're both right. Yeah, oh, everyone yeah. is right. <laughs> Ooh. Now we're going back to fate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. <laughs> right. Yeah, just a little bit of a... have to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and make sure that all the... Yeah, it's, and it's good to finally get a bit away from the medical news items yeah exactly and not covid related not covid not homeopathy not cancer and that kind of stuff so yeah (laughs) but i think that was the last of our news items that we prepared for this week which means we need to find out as soon as possible who's been really wrong or really right lately actually this is the first i think this is the first time that I have awarded a really right award three weeks in a row. But I will do that. Well, three episodes in a row. Okay. We need the optimism and the positive side. Yeah, I think think so. (laughs) It's not... I mean, this is a complex issue. Uh, Sorry, complex um, topic. And uh, I'm not sure everybody will agree with me, but it's a fascinating story. And uh, I'm also interested to see how it will lead into the future. So what am I talking about I'm talking about assisted deaths. Only three countries in Europe approve of assisted dying as a whole. That's Belgium, Netherlands and... uh, Switzerland. Actually, it's Luxembourg. Oh. (laughs) Uh, Because in Switzerland, Germany, uh, Finland and Austria, physician-assisted deaths are allowed under certain specific scenarios. I see. (laughs) And in other countries like uh, Sweden and Hungary, Anders, Mm -hmm. so-called passive euthanasia is legal under strict circumstances. That's basically that you stop all treatments and let the person die from natural causes, if you will. But many would question, why is it uh, that a person cannot be allowed to choose how and when to end their life. Uh, As I said, it's complex, it's complicated, it's ethics, and it has to be very carefully considered. But it's easy to imagine situation when all hope is gone and a person only has pain and misery to look forward to for the rest of their life. Why should we not allow that person to decide when to end it all? And um, the debate has suddenly become very much in the news in Sweden because a retired doctor and a researcher from the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm has turned himself into the police for helping a patient to die. Hmm. And he has no reason to do that except that he wants to highlight this issue. The patient in question was an ALS patient in a very severe condition who actually had permission to go to Switzerland, Annika, and to terminate his life legally, but he couldn't go due to the pandemic. There were, he couldn't, he wasn't allowed to travel. So there was a thorough investigation already done. All papers were in order, but he couldn't go. And this doctor, uh, now 77 years old and retired, he's called Stefan Bergström, he decided to help. He is retired anyway, and he hasn't got a lot of career to jeopardize. And um, 
Following, of course, the will of the patient, he prepared a glass of some sort of overdose, I don't know, what, some sort of medication. It didn't really say what it was. And, uh, and this, this is important. He just put everybody, they had agreed everything in advance, and he put the, the glass down on the table beside the bed, and then he backed away and placed both his hands behind his back and watched the patient drink it. And the reason that that's important is that the law forbids that anyone directly take the life of somebody else. Uh, that would be man clear manslaughter. But mm -hmm. this guy, Bajstom, he wants to argue that he only passively made it possible. He didn't physically take part in, in the ending of the patient's life. He just watched as it happened. And then he contacted the police because his opinion is that this should be legal. And he had also taken uh, counsel with uh, legal experts before he did this. So he's challenging the system to try to get a change, or at least to get this issue highlighted and discussed, because it's something that we, I don't think, is very much talked about. And uh, what, what are your thoughts about this? Do you think he's right? Um, Wrong? It's difficult to say, actually, because as a medical doctor, you have sworn the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah. So that means you swore, like, I don't know the whole word wording, but I think you you, yeah, you swear to protect human life, and you, but you also swear to help. And, and yeah. don't, don't yeah. take harm. So, but what is harm in this situation? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, it's, it's a more philosophical thing, I would say, than, than a medical thing. Yeah. I mean, in Germany, we have have a bit of a not not a bit actually but we have a very bad history with euthanasia we also don't call it euthanasia for that reason in germany hmm. yeah because the nazis uh mm -hmm. yeah. did exactly that uh, claiming that like oh yeah they're only suffering because they are um, mentally handicapped so they are suffering so we all kill them so like, that's why it's in germany it's a bit of a taboo or hot topic mm -hmm. and it's very hard to change things here in Germany yeah but in the end it's like normally you always can decide to live your life however you want but if you can't do that anymore because you're so sick then like they take some of your freedom away so to say yeah if you can't make that decision that's my opinion like my personal opinion what do you say Anders it's difficult I'm not outright pro and not against a euthanasia and assisted suicide but i do believe in the necessity to go with dignity yeah and uh, yes. if that cannot be provided by just allowing someone to suffer until the, their last breath is something that i cannot bear for example if assisted suicide uh, had been legal here in hungary my aunt wouldn't have had to suffer for half a year without being able to move, without being able to take care of herself. And uh, that was just a struggle the last couple of months. And she knew exactly what would happen. She knew exactly that it would it would just get worse. But it was not allowed for her yeah. to go. Yeah, that's terrible. And that is terrible. But on the other hand, I have a couple of friends who are doctors. I have a few anesthesiologists among my friends as well. Some of them work in uh, intensive care units as well, of course. And uh, I've heard stories from them. I know they are only stories, but, you know, it's difficult to assess the situation properly and work out whether that person is really about to die or they have a chance to 
go back to normal yeah. by recovering completely. Mm. Humans are amazing. Some people can recover completely from a situation that looks absolutely unwinnable. Yeah. And then some people all of a sudden just die. It's not predictable now. So it's difficult. It's not black or white. It has to be discussed. But what I really admire about this guy is the way he did it. Mm. That yes. Me too. I did something that is illegal. And now I'm going out and talk about this. I want this to be in the public discourse. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think there's many problems with this. But the one problem is to really be sure that you obtain informed consent from the patient. That's right. Because you, before you're so ill that you have to take this decision, but let's assume it's legal, then you're not in the situation and you, you may not know enough to talk about it but then if you're very very ill you may not be able to communicate exactly so so how do you know it's very very difficult but i mean but we do it all the time with our pets for instance people are very often as much uh, attached to their pets as they are to their husband that's right or whatever that's right and uh, we don't have a problem with doing that we just call i will put him out of his misery and and everybody thinks that's normal why can't we do that with humans but you you're comfortable making that decision for the pet yourself yeah. because you're kind of the owner of the pet. So you're responsible for that pet. Yeah. But would you be ready to make that decision for someone else, for a person? It wouldn't be an easy decision, but in theory, yeah. I think I would be. When if, if you put me in that situation, I, I don't know what will happen, but I'd like to think yes. Yeah. But what is ethically correct or what you are convinced of is not always what you can do in yeah. the moment. Yeah, terminal cancer. Yeah. That is something that you can probably not overturn, right? Yeah. So... If someone is in the stage of, of just suffering needlessly, yeah. uh, that is... This may be the most serious uh, award we have all, ever yeah. given out. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah, but I have to say he had to have a lot of personal integrity and, and mm -hmm. moral fiber to That's right. yeah. also to turn himself in. Yes, so. exactly. He actually said that he believes that a lot of doctors have done this but uh, they haven't come forward with it because he says this is part of being a doctor. You have to care for the patient and this is part of caring for the patient. So I don't know. But um, still, for challenging the system and to start a very important debate, and of course also because he helped a fellow human being who was caught in a terrible situation, Stefan Bergström gets today's prize for being really right. Mm. Well deserved. Yeah. If Apple was European, I could use uh, their slogan mm. for, for this situation as a quote, which is, I don't know if you remember that, their uh, Think Different campaign. Ah. It was amazing. <laughs> because the, okay. end, the end of that was, those who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Mm. So yeah. I really hope that this will be the case with this guy as well. Yeah. All right. But this means uh, we're concluding the show. We have one more thing to do, and that is give you a quote. And I will be delivering that quote. Mm -hmm. That is from French physicist Maurice Paul-Auguste Charles Fabry. Short name. Short name. <laughs> the French used to, used to like those short names, you know. Yeah. I think they, they still do, in a way. <laughs> All right. And the quote is, The impression that science is over 
has occurred many times in various branches of human knowledge, often because of an explosion of discoveries made by a genius or a small group of men in such a short time that average minds could hardly follow and had the unconscious desire to take a breath, to get used to the unexpected things that came to be revealed. Dazzled by these new truths, they could not see beyond. Sometimes an entire century did not suffice to produce this accommodation. So, yeah. That's an interesting quote. It is, yeah. Yeah. Science is occasionally very hard to accept <laughs> to digest yes it is <laughs> to it digest is, yeah. yes yeah but uh, somehow it's never over there is always more to discover so in a way i think it's still fitting for uh the the really right segment because mm-hmm. it's about progress not only science but it's about progress as well uh, yeah so, it's true yes and on that positive note uh i think we are actually finishing the show and i'd like to thank both of you onika and Pontus for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure as always. And I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in and enduring this long show, uh, which is definitely longer than usual. But until next week, goodbye. Hey, do. Tschüss. Bis dann. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe You're listening to the ESP. Uh, no. Okay. No. Veto. Did you take any drugs for the colonoscopy? Yeah, and it still hasn't worn off. <laughs> Maybe it was a coffee enema they gave you at the same time, so you're full Ooh. of caffeine. Ooh, that, yeah. To reach so-called herd immunity. We got your immunity. Got your immunity. Oh, yeah, Because estimates say that to get rid of COVID-19 and to reach so-called herd immunity... I haven't. (laughs) Have you heard? Have you heard immunity? (laughs) Immunity. 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 And I was doing so good, so well. Never mind. We can fix it in post.